Throughout history, human beings have been fascinated by transformation, when, where, and how it happens in nature, and also in learning how to create it, how to harness its power. We seek growth and progress in our communities, our workplaces, and our relationships, and for ourselves. Hi, I'm Tash McGill, and I've been on a lifelong journey to help people change the way they think in order to find momentum and transformation. The Transformationist is a podcast dedicated to real stories of transformation and the insights and actions that make it possible. These are the strategies, the stories, and the real-life experiences that help you shape transformation in your own life, whether for your business, your relationships, or your own personal growth. In this podcast, you'll meet people from all walks of life who have experienced transformation through changing their mind or in response to tragedy, unexpected circumstances, and even life surprises. Each and every person we talk to has a deeply personal and moving experience to share. And you'll also meet experts in transformation through creativity, bread making, art, and business. You see, transformation is found all around us. The goal here is not to prescribe, but rather to share from the collective wisdom of many, a method for embracing and moving towards the transformation that you seek. And my hope is that you will be inspired, and these stories might help you change the way you think. So welcome. Thanks for joining us. In my experience working with all manner of people, I'm yet to encounter anyone who has experienced an internal change that hasn't also been reflected in their physical way of being, uh, their way of breathing and doing life in the world. And our guest today, Meg, is a business owner. In her own words, she's a writer, a creator, a mentor and an initiator. But she has a really remarkable story of uh, physical limitation that was transformed through changing her perspective and thinking uh, about herself. Her passion is for getting people started on the path to their um, greatness and it really fuels her with an infectious energy which I can't wait to introduce you to. It's really hard to be around Meg for any length of time before she starts asking questions like okay and what else and you know what's your more, what's your extra, what's your next level of life. Uh, And the great thing about her is that she loves nothing more than drawing that out of people and getting them on the path uh, to living as the next version, the next level version of themselves in business and in life. And with all of this energy and momentum building, she also has a real desire to make a difference in the world in areas of injustice and apathy. So uh, it's really wonderful to have you on the show, Meg Cowan. Thank you for joining us. Oh, hi. I'm blushing. Oh, thank you. What a beautiful intro. Oh uh, well, you know it's it's important to make everybody feel good at the begin at the beginning of the episode. I think that right, that right. Well done. Yeah. So uh, so tell us a little bit about you. Where are you in life right now? Tell us about your business and tell us what you're up to. Yeah. Okay. So I am in a really cool place in life right now, which, like you alluded to, hasn't always been the case. Um, and I I love my life at the moment. Um, I recently well actually recently, it's a couple years now, um, have been back in New Zealand, which is my home country and so beautiful. I love it. We have uh, my husband and I and our two kids, we've bought 
a bit of land and we are four weeks away from our beautiful new house being finished. Um, so <laughs> we have been living the last couple of years in a renovated shed on the land while we build, well, we don't build it, but while the builders have been working away on the new house. And so I'm really excited about this stage of life that we're in, just in, in our personal lives and um, moving into that new space in a couple of weeks is super exciting. Business is good. It is growing. It is, um, it's not busy. It's full, um, but I love it. Um, we have a, a stationary company and we are distributed in, uh, we're sold in seven countries now. Um, so that is, that is busy. And my husband is a graphic designer, so he is busy with clients. And yeah, it's full and it's beautiful and kids stuff and client stuff. And it's great. It's great. Uh, so, th I mean, that sounds pretty remarkable. Um, the after of your story really is, I mean, it's pretty inspiring and pretty engaging, um, but it wasn't always this way. Uh, and in fact, mm. there really was a time when it was difficult probably <laughs> to do some of the everyday tasks and you probably would never have imagined yourself living in a shed um, for a couple of <laughs> years while building a house. Um, yeah, and, and I'm guessing probably um, probably it was a little hard to, um, to explain during those times, you know, kind of some of the pain and what you were experiencing in the day-to-day. -day. But can you tell us a little bit more about the before, before life was as great as it is now? Um, can you tell us a little bit, I guess, about the time when your desire to change the world seemed like it was really, really far away and out of reach? Yeah, for sure. So um, I... I had something called, well, they had lots of names for it, but the easiest way to describe it is chronic pain, fibromyalgia, uh, for 10, around 10 years. And so that started off when I came back from overseas as an 18-year-old and I had I caught some sort of virus in Hong Kong where I lived and they don't know exactly what it was. But what it meant is that over a period of years, it um, it put my body in a whole lot of pain. So I was having full-blown migraine headaches um, and full body aches. The migraine headaches, they were probably about four out of seven days. I would want to lock myself in a room. I'd want it to be dark. I would want to vomit. I was just like very, very debilitating. Um, and then the rest of those days when I didn't have migraines, um, as well as that, I would have just chronic body aching and pain like when you get a viral cold and you feel like you just can't move and you can't get out of bed I felt like that a lot of the time I felt like my skin was on fire um my yeah. husband like we have this joke firm touching firm touching because he would um he would brush up against my skin and I would like recoil it was so painful um so it was it was certainly not the reality I'm living in now and that was um, 10 years and it sounds sounds kind of like, oh, you know, I had 10 years of pain syndrome. But when you're living in that, 10 years is a hell of a long time. As you describe, and I've heard little parts of your story over the years, and I have other friends who have had, um, they've, you know, they've had the diagnosis of fibromyalgia and um, kind of these chronic conditions that it seems like the medical profession doesn't really know what to do with and therefore... <laughs> you know it's and and this is maybe me being surrounded by cynics you know but it seems like there are a lot of people who find it quite hard to take those sorts of conditions seriously 
Um, you know, if it's not something that you're getting chemotherapy for, then somehow it's not, you know, it's not maybe a real disease or maybe it's all just in your head, that kind of thing. Um, Do you know what? Those are the questions I ask myself, though. I'm like, seriously, why am I so screwed up? Is this all in my head? Is this just, but I mean, you can't get away from the physical reality of it. And I got really good at wearing masks, which I think doesn't help the situation because I got really great at just acting like I was okay a lot of the time. So when I was out of the house, people would see me and I would smile and I would talk and I would engage. And um, I was only working part-time at various points throughout those years, but I would engage and I would show up and I would bring all of myself to my job as much as I possibly could or all of myself to that social event I was at. But there was a lot of things that people didn't see. And, you know, probably only Evan is the one who really, my husband, he's the one who really only saw the fullness and the depth of the situation and my family to some degree. But I mean, they lived three hours away, so they didn't, you know, they weren't dealing with me on a day-to-day basis. So even with family, I would go home and I would hold it together as much as I could, you know? And, And so it does, it kind of breeds that, that cynicism in people they're like really you don't seem that sick uh, so yeah it's it's a really really it's an invisible illness and that's that's hard for both sides to deal with yeah so what well, I mean what kind of what kind of treatment did you go through I mean did you know were you were you in that mode of kind of uh, when I'm trying to when I'm faced with a problem uh, I'm just kind of like I go into full research mode. I look at what all of my options are. I try yeah. and ensure that I've, you know, that I've got the the very best advice. You know, what what was the what was the treatment process like for that? I mean, ten years is a long time. I'm assuming that, I mean, you're not the kind of person that just gives up and says, no. okay, well, I guess this is life. No, and we we definitely oh, it's, it would almost be easier to tell you what treatments I didn't do. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> So I started off with a regular doctor, like my GP, and after I'd been through neurologists and all sorts, and I'd had brain scans to make sure that stuff wasn't going on there, and I'd had all their blood tests and all that sort of stuff, my GP at the time told me, well, maybe you're just a headachey person. And, (laughs) And I went, okay, bye now, I'm not coming to visit you again. And that was sort of two years in after trying to get some sort of process and diagnosis. Oh, um, my gosh. <laughs> that, just, that just sounds like something that you would read in a 1960s men's magazine. Can oh, I say that? Yeah, I, it was just like I came home and I, I kind of didn't say anything to her at the time. And then I came home and I said to Evan, I think we were newly married at this stage, and he's like, what you're just he was like oh my gosh okay you need to find a new doctor I was like yeah I know I'm looking for a new doctor (laughs) (laughs) um and so treatment kind of started and I had all kinds of things like breathing exercises that one therapist was suggesting and then oh so I did all of the kind of traditional medical stuff first so I went through the neurologists and the psychologists and the psychiatrists and all that sort of stuff I went through the pain management clinic I was on antidepressants because obviously dealing with the pain I was also depressed about that and struggling with that Uh, So I went through all of that. I did antidepressants and muscle relaxants and all those drug-based traditional kinds of treatments. 
and I did physiotherapy and chiropractic and osteopathic and um, cranial stuff and I did weird food diets I did almost every diet like whenever a new diet comes out I'm like yeah whatever done it um so and (laughs) then and then I ended up going to some really great natural doctors up in Auckland they were a holistic kind of approach and so then we started on the natural therapies which are even more weird and wonderful (laughs) Um, and it was just you know so it was every vitamin every mineral every herb every homeopathic thing um, and so we literally, we got to the point where we sold our house, um, and we spent our house deposit on medical oh. treatment because we were just like, we really were desperate. I was like, I can't keep living like this. I can't. Um, yeah. And so, and then all the, all the therapy as well to deal with the, you know, my head game as well. Obviously it's different for each person, but. Uh, when you talk about the head game, you know, what was that like for you? What did it do to your mindset um, having to deal with that day after day? Yeah, so it really messes with you. It really makes you question uh, what is wrong with me. It actually brings up questions of worth, or it did for me. I know it's different for everybody. I'm not presuming that I can speak for everybody who's going through these sorts of conditions. But for me, uh, it was really about um, worth and It was about what, you know, I had these big dreams of what I wanted to do in the world and who am I if I can't do those things? Who am I if I'm not contributing in the way that I believe is important and is a part of my purpose? Who am I then if I'm not doing that? I felt guilty, um, guilty as a wife, you know, when Evan and I started dating, I wasn't really sick. I'd just come back from overseas. And then over the two years that we were dating, I was getting progressively worse. But of course, we were madly in love. And he um, bravely asked me to marry him. And I said yes. And then we'd been married like three months. And I just absolutely tanked um, physically and so he was having to do a whole lot of stuff that I you know I had all these expectations about what sort of woman I would be as a wife and I couldn't meet very very many of those things just I couldn't do them Um, and so it really does it does test you and it does um, screw with your mind. So those um I mean yeah, as you talk about that, I just think like I kind of almost feel like this physical kind of wrenching in my gut <laughs> as I think about because uh, yeah, I feel like so many of us uh, have been in that place of we we want we've got a big dream, we have a big vision, we want to make a big difference and a big impact um, either in the world or in our business or whatever or whatever place that might be, and then the gut wrench. I've had experiences where it feels like something's come like a bolt out of the blue out of nowhere and mm. has disrupted me, has actually stopped me dead in my tracks from being able to do that thing. And I can only imagine, you know, how much worse that would feel, you know, when it's your own body. Because I feel like everything else is, everything else, you know, you can you can move and you can shift those pieces or you can, you know, look for outside help. But if it's your own body, you know, that's fighting against you, then um, this is where my mind goes. I'm a little bit darker, you see. <laughs> um, I go, oh, my own body's fighting against me. You know, how, how do I possibly um, move through that? But what, 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 what were the big dreams? I mean, was, was, was stationary the big dream or was there something <laughs> a little bit more? No, I so so I sell um, actually funeral stationery, which is a very random little niche. Um, and I like it. it. Yeah, yeah. 
So there's lots of great dark jokes once you're in that industry. <laughs> but I, that was not like I didn't, I didn't think as a nine-year-old, you know what, when I grow up, I really want to sell funeral stationery. That wasn't um, a part of my big life plan. Um, I, I guess I was nine years old and I heard a woman called Christina Noble on the radio and she wrote a book called Bridge Across My Sorrows. And she, oh, she works in, is it in, it's in Southeast Asia somewhere. Isn't in it? Cambodia um, yeah. and, and other places now as well, I think. She's not just there. But I read her story, which potentially I'm not sure if my mum should have let me read it at nine or uh, maybe I think I think I read the book at 10 or 11 and I heard her on the radio at nine. And it's quite a, it's quite a heavy book in points. Um, but she talked about her life and how she had been through all this horrific stuff. I mean, alcoholic father, mum dies, gang rape, gets pregnant, son taken from her, abusive marriage, miscarriages, like just horrendous story. Mm. And then out of all that, she picks herself up and she goes to Cambodia because she wants to save kids from sex trafficking and the sex industry and from living on the streets. And it really planted something in me. And so that was always the big dream that in some way I would do something like she had done. I would save the world one baby at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I guess that's why I went to Hong Kong. I went and I worked in an orphanage there for a year. It was a very strong driving force of my life that I was going to save the world and I was going to save children from injustice. And yeah, I was going to do it single-handedly, obviously. <laughs> that's like, oh, wait, totally. I mean, that's how, we, that's how all superheroes start out, isn't it? That's like right. single, that's the trope. They start out by themselves and eventually they learn they need a team just like the X-Men yeah. or something like that. <laughs> um, so that's the uh, so a, a total digression. But, um, I mean, so those are, those are, big, those are big dreams. Mm. And then you are, you know, somewhat trapped by this illness. Um, yeah. Where does the transformation process begin? Like what was what was going on? Was it that you just hit a point of desperation, um, and you know, did you just reach the limit, and there was something that 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 interrupted that, or um, mm. did you did you encounter somebody on the path? You know, how did it? Um, I find that you know the beginning of transformation is always a little bit different. So how how was it for you? Where did it yeah, where did it begin? So I was, I'm, I'm a very driven sort of person. So I was always seeking answers. I was always looking for how I was going to solve this situation. And there was a few things that happened. One of them was actually that I, I got to a point of surrender in myself. I just realized I actually can't do this by myself. It was the superhero moment. I realized I mm-hmm. needed, I needed some people in my corner. Um, and actually I had I had been seeing a woman um, called Jill who I absolutely love and adore. She's a counsellor, but she has a master's in art therapy. And being someone who's creative and who's driven that way and I think that way, she saw me uh, one day at, at the place where I was working and where she was working and she said to me, okay, I want you to come and see me. We need to spend some time talking about what is going on here. And she could obviously she obviously read something in me and I was pretty good at hiding things. I was pretty good at, at masking up and making sure people didn't know the full extent of what was going on. But she has a, 
a, a level of insight that I am grateful for. <laughs> you found a wise woman, a sage, <laughs> to yeah. interrupt you on the path. <laughs> yes, and she actually terrified me a little bit at the start because she was a lot of the things that I kind of knew I was inside but was not able to express or hadn't got comfortable with. She was um, very self-expressed. Um, she was, you know, she appeared very confident and comfortable in her own skin, which I certainly gave the appearance of being, but I was struggling with inside because I was wrestling with all of these expectations, all of these things that I wanted to be that I couldn't be right now. And mm-hmm. um, so, so I started on a process, I think it was over about six months, I saw her and we did art therapy work. And she really started to dig into the things that were going on in my underneath, you know, in my thinking and those expectations that were just massive. And as a part of that process, I mean, I was still really sick at this time and my husband was flat out with work and uh, I was not coping. By this stage, I had a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. So I managed to bang out a couple of kids in the middle of all of this as well. but, you know, we got, we got to the point with having kids where we went, hey, we don't know how long I'm going to be sick and when I'm ever going to get better. So we better, if we want to have kids, we're just going to have to find a way to make it work. So we had decided to have kids. Um, and I got to the point, he was really busy at work one time. And he actually called my mum, who was away on holiday down in Queenstown. And she said, uh, he said to her, Michelle, we are not coping. We need you to come and help. I've got heaps of stuff going on at work. Meg's not good. We just need help. And that was that was really hard for me to allow him to do that, to reach out to her and say, hey, we're not okay. Mm. Um, and, and this was after years. She knew that I overall wasn't that great. but uh, And she just dropped everything and she came. And and it was in that that moment he came home late one night he took me down to the beach he practically had to carry me into the car I could hardly get there and we drove down to the beach we lived near Coe Beach at the time in Auckland and he um, we were talking and I got a message from Jill who actually I hadn't seen for a little while and she sent me this message that basically was just really encouraging me I know you're going to see this. I know you're going to see what you're believing for and you're hoping for. It's going to happen. And I went from talking about, oh my gosh, this is so hard. I don't know how to do this. I can't believe we've had to get mum here and just being really agitated. And we started, we got out of the car and we went for a walk along the beach and we started, which remember I could hardly get in the car and suddenly I'm walking along the beach. So this was kind Mm. of my, this was my miraculous divine moment that I don't quite know how to explain. Um, And I walked along the beach and we walked the length of the beach and back in in winter and we were talking about and hoping and dreaming about what it was going to be like and I was going to start a business and this is how it was going to be and I was going to save all those kids and I was going to do all those things and how that would look for us as a family and so yeah I'm 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 going on (laughs) like it's hard for me to say one exact moment but if I can bring it back to anything I think it was that moment of surrendering and hoping. What were the, um, I mean, it's interesting hearing you talk about, you know, it almost sounds like, it almost sounds like there's a sense of, there was a sense of like shame um, in having to, in having to call, you know, your mum, who's like your mum, right? But that sense of shame of having to call and say, okay, I'm not, you know, not, we need help. We need something more. Um, 
you know, what what do you think it was? Where do you think that came from? That sense of, um, you know, you talked about like putting on the putting on the mask for people and and that not really letting people into, you know, how how deep the pain was. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I might be I might be stretching and I might be guessing, but I mean, it seems to me like there was there was obviously something in that 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 has has obviously changed because now you are this very open-handed open-hearted kind of person I'm a bit of an open book now um but I it's still a process I'm not all there of course um but I think that why I carried that shame why I carried that level of expectation I'm not sure um I have always been very driven. I'm actually reading a great book at the moment by a guy called Doug Brackman, which is called Driven, and it's giving me a whole lot more insight again at a whole other level into who I am and my personality. Um, I I just have always been really driven and relatively capable. And so, you know, at, at 17, I decided I was off to Hong Kong and I wasn't doing my last year at school and I had to raise 10 grand in five, six months. And so... I just did it. We we started fundraising and, you know, what I set my mind to, I could usually always conquer. And then suddenly I was faced with this situation that I didn't know how to fix or I didn't know how to just power through it. And so mm. there was, I guess there was shame and there was expectation about not being able to do that. So weird, isn't it? How like independence is something mm. that we strive for and yet independence can just as quickly turn on us and yeah. and layer us with all of these other different things that we then have to kind of fight our way through again I just find that such a such a fascinating kind of process so um so that you talk about that moment on the beach um what started to happen you know sort of post that what was the what was the shift or what were the things that you started to see, not just in terms of being able to, you know, walk along the beach, but, but what were the insights that were starting to appear at that point? Yeah, so I, I come back to that moment because it always feels nice to have some sort of definer or marker in our story. And I come back to that as being the moment where I kind of turned the key in my thinking and I said, okay, enough. And I had done that at points and I guess a lot of my story and a lot of my work with Jill that I did in the art therapy was leading up to that. But I finally somehow got to this point where I said, okay, I'm I'm going to live fully regardless of my body, regardless of whatever's going on. I just made a decision in myself again to live fully. And then this amazing, and you know what I have to say, I think something divine and spiritual happened in that moment. I'm a spiritual mm. person. I don't go looking for really weird out of the box situations, but I do, I really believe that God was evident in that situation. So it was like this defining moment and I feel like all the pieces just kind of fell into place and came to to a point there. But from there, there was a period of probably three months where as my body was progressively getting better, I feel like it was connected with the transformation and the shift that was happening in my mind. And that was about hope. That was about viewing my my next level self, about um, really beginning to set my focus on who I desired to be, not on what I was trying to fight and what I was dealing with. Mm. Um, and things that I knew, but somehow I just 
I had this moment where I knew I had to turn my attention very fully and almost obsessively towards who I was going to be and who I was becoming rather than obsessively looking for a solution in a physical treatment yeah. that was going to fix me. I almost had to obsessively shift my focus to, okay, who am I becoming? Who am I supposed to be? Yeah, that's so good. You know, that, that shift in thinking that happens when we, when we identify that the goals that we're so often focused on are not necessarily the right place to put our energy, but rather putting our energy yeah. in the outcome. You know, like what's the outcome? Just as you're saying, like, who am I going to be? Who am I? Who am I becoming? That did that? Um, you know, even just as you start to talk, I kind of feel the shift in energy. And, and did it? I mean, did it? Did it shift your? Did it shift your energy? Did it shift your? Um, did it shift your perspective from kind of you know present to future? Yeah, I've always been pretty future focused, but I was. I was focused on what is the next treatment and it was always it was always about trying to solve this problem rather than imagine the big stuff and really because I was scared of imagining all that big stuff I was scared of imagining the big dreams again and the you know maybe I'm going to do this because I I thought man what if I get let down again what if my body can't keep up with that all those mm-hmm. all those questions that I had and so so it was shifting the way I was thinking. Uh, it was shifting what I was focused on to the future, but um, to the positive version of the future, really. <laughs> Instead of the worst case scenario, yeah, which yeah. is helpful. So with that, um, you know, with that, with that change in thinking that's ha- that's happening. I guess I mean I would call that the I would call that the insight piece. Um, mm. Were there were there actions? Were there things that you then needed to to change or somehow put into practice in your day-to-day life to start, you know, to start that kind of combo journey. I talk about that equation of insight plus action equals transformation. You know, that the insight alone is never enough. You have to do something um, with that insight. Um, So, you know, what did that look like for you starting to, you know, what were the, where were the places that you started to, to maybe do things differently or that you noticed a difference in the action you were taking yeah so I had these tools around art therapy that Jill had given me and had taught me and so I started to just make it non-negotiable that I engaged with those sorts of activities those sorts of things um art therapy and journaling were massive for me uh, things where I was writing and painting and creating my new reality and you know I paint and I don't even necessarily like what it looks like when it's finished as a finished piece, but it doesn't matter because I paint for the process of it. And it's like, you have to get the truth in your body. It's, it's like something, you know, in your body and somehow painting and dancing and writing. Those are the things that have to come out of me. And then I begin to see myself differently through that process. So journaling has been absolutely massive. Um, those are and they became my non-negotiables like I just I had young children and at this at this point we had like nannies and people helping us look after them because when my son was two months old I couldn't even lift him you know I couldn't lift this newborn baby and so we had to um, it was hard to find time and I had to really make and choose that I was going to engage in those activities at the expense of 
housework at the expense of sometimes <laughs> social activities at the expense of you know I, I chose those things consistently and repetitively yeah I think everyone was probably with you um in that moment <laughs> where you said housework they're like yeah, yeah 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 I'll sacrifice housework for for uh for journaling I still the, um, live in that reality every day <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I, I relate to that. That I have some, I have some rituals of my own that I think are so important, and journaling is definitely one of them. Mm. Um, you know, a combination of I, I use, um, I use the morning pages principle, um, which is you know super has been super powerful, and I use it in different ways in different seasons. But um, mm. the, you know, nowadays it's kind of a combination of okay, here's my here's my download of everything that my brain's been doing overnight. I sometimes, um, uh, I, I think I inherited this from my mother. My mother is the kind of person that, um, and she probably hates it. In fact, she does. I'm sure she hates it, but she's the kind of person where, um, she just has a supercomputer for, for a brain. Yeah. And so you want to talk to her, um, at night and tell her whatever the problem is that you can't solve. And it's a big deal. If I get to a point where it's nine o'clock at night and I haven't been able to solve my problem of the day. And then I, so I, I talk to mum and I say, well, here's the problem that I'm trying to solve. And she'll, you know, get a little bit wound up or whatever. And then she'll say, oh, well, just let me think about it. And, and almost invariably in my life, when I've, when I've done that, when I've done that, she calls me up in the morning and she'll be like, okay, here's the solution you need to do this and this and this and um but I think my brain's a little bit the same that that it's so important for me to get up in the morning and download everything that my brain's been working on overnight um, because that concept of those morning pages is so fantastic for that it's really it's about conscious stream journaling just throwing down everything on that page with no judgment with no um, restriction on yourself you know, have a place where you can keep your journal so your kids can't read it because you just want to be able to, you want to be able to just, put, just put it all down there. I even, I said to Evan, my husband, I said, babe, just in case you ever feel tempted to pick up my journal and read it, I actually don't have an issue if you do, but just know that a lot of it is conscious stream and I am just like throwing down everything I can think of. So don't be offended if you read something about yourself and how <laughs> I'm done and I've had enough because <laughs> that's mm-hmm. just processing. Yeah. And such a, um, I think it's such a powerful tool for, um, because I know you, you write and as do I, and um, you know, it's a challenging, it's a challenging and a helpful tool to move into that space of just mm-hmm. purging the words and the thoughts without self-editing. Yeah. Um, because I think we do that all the time. We do it in conversation and we do it in, you know, just when we when we sit down to write. But that, yeah, I love that morning pages. Mine now almost always ends with a combination of um, meditation and affirmations. Um, yeah. and, and I've found it so helpful to, you know, write out and to express my own affirmations about a thousand different ways now. Mm. Um, but but it's kind of it's interesting how that's kind of crept crept into it because that then becomes my centering, you know, for the day, which oh, I think is yeah, one hundred. But, um, but when when you you know when you talk about that that kind of you know the future girl, the future self mm. um, that Meg needed to be, and that that role of expressing it, like giving voice to it, mm-hmm. you know, I just think it is so important, even even if you're not trying to recover from illness. And I mean, I don't know, did, were you at that point, were you thinking about recovery or were you just thinking about improvement? 
I was, I think at that point, I was just thinking about living. (laughs) I was just, and not surviving. I'd been thinking about surviving before and, Mm. and it shifted. So I was thinking about living and I still go through these moments when I have to really consciously remind myself, okay, Meg, are we surviving here? Are we just getting through and getting this stuff done because it has to be done? Or are we living? Are we designing the life? <laughs> Talk about we like there's more than us, just me. But, you know, like am I, am I living the life that I know I'm supposed to live, that I'm designed to live? And that's where, the, that's where the affirmation piece comes in in terms of journaling because I think that's something I wanted to say is that you do the conscious stream stuff and you do the morning pages kind of work where you just lay it all out. But that doesn't that in itself doesn't bring transformation, I don't believe. It's in the reframing of that stuff. When you go back through <laughs> it and you read it and you go, hold on, I, can, I see a story that I'm telling myself here that's not yeah. serving me, that's not moving me forward, that's not how I want to believe or think. And yeah. so I actually will write at the top of my page, reframe, and I'll go back and I'll pick out those things and I'll go, okay, now this is, and do lots of I am statements and yeah. lots of um, perfect day stuff. So really imagining your perfect day and how you want that to look and what does your designed life actually look like because you do mm-hmm. get to choose. Even when you're yeah. sick, you get to choose. I tell you, the um, you know, it's so interesting that you say that because that is that that's that dynamic of insight and action uh, mm. at play again. You know, you can't just uh, if you if you have the insight, you've got to take the you've got to take some sort of action to make it real to help your brain form the the new neural pathway. But yeah. conversely, right. you can't just do the action and expect to get the transformation just as just like you just said it so perfectly you know doing the morning pages alone is not going to provide the trend the transformation and um joanna cole she's the author of the book love rules um mm-hmm. that she was the chief content um officer for hearst magazines um until very recently she actually i heard her speak um just just a week or so ago and she said the the number one reason to journal is is not to write the words down but but that you actually can play the role of your own data analyst that you wow. are in fact your greatest um your, your greatest weapon your, your greatest tool your greatest asset that mm. um she she's british and so she said you know you can be your own shrink if you take mm. the time to collect the data and then go back and review it and look for the patterns and look for what you're seeing and look for the stories that you're telling yourself um because oh, when you can change so the story, powerful. incredibly powerful, because when you change the story, when you change the way you're thinking and writing and speaking about whatever your reality is, um, then you actually start to, I, I do genuinely believe you start to reshape what that reality is, because as yeah. you as you think you act, you know, as you, yeah. as you write, you are. Um, There's an amazing book by Dr. Caroline Leaf called Switch on Your Brain, and she talks about this, about how you can actually detoxify your brain and how you can create new neural pathways and ways of thinking and I believe that actually our soul or our spirit we already know what we need inside but we've been conditioned and over our lifetimes we've built up these pathways and these ways of thinking and ways of being and stories that we've layered on top of our experience and we actually have to to go through to rewire those pathways to allow space for the truth and the knowing that's in our body and our spirit to to come out and to have you know to have 
real have life have space to be and mm-hmm. um, what was the uh, how would you describe the story that you how would you describe the story of before versus the story of you know like <laughs> that future girl it was it was it was future girl versus versus what you know that future sick girl's girl. trying to get sick out of girl. Uh, um, sick girl okay yeah 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 there's a there's a cartoon in that I'm sure um <laughs> I the story of sick girl was that I wasn't in control that this had happened to me um the story of sick girl was that people expected more of me that I should have lots of shoulds and um expectation and the story of sick girl was that she was not living up to who she should have been and um that she wasn't in control of that that her body was failing her and that for some reason and somehow she was a failure versus future girl who knows that even if my body is not behaving um and actually it does relatively well now which is amazing but um even when it's not even when I'm not having a great day that's not reflective on my worth and my value um I know I can still in pockets of time choose to step in and be that next level version of myself and and I can continue to day after day make choices that line me up with who I want to be. I'm not perfect. I'm definitely on a process and there's things that my family <laughs> will certainly tell you still need to line up a little bit more. But but I think it was that power of realizing the decision and the choice um, and surrendering to the fact that I was valuable and worth it whether my body responded as I thought it should or not. Oh, that's that's so that's so powerful and engaging. I I'm sure that you know this, but just in case anybody um, listening missed it, the shift in um, in you know third person when you're talking about when you were talking about sick girl story, it was she. And then as soon as you started yeah. talking about the the story of future girl, it becomes I and me and my body, and you know that's. Um, but that, isn't that the place we want to get to? That the the future girl that we can bring that down to the now and I think that's what I Mm. challenge my clients with like you can start acting like that version of yourself now even if it's not even if you're not fully there and that's part of creating those new pathways is you can start to act like that version of yourself that you want to be how can you bring that down into now how can you bring that into reality so powerful yeah, when I first started to look at the um, the the application of of affirmations, because I use them all the time in my in my own life, but I but I use them with clients as well. They are mm. uh, one of the one of the key things that I learned was the importance of um, of keeping affirmations in the present tense. Mm. So you know, I am never I am going to be, or never she is going to be, or he will be, but I am. I am, I do, I am already, you know, that, that, um, that shift in focus. So, so important, I think. And, you know, and, it, and again, it comes back to that expression of self to be, this is, this is who I'm going to be. It's not a, it's not a hopeful kind of mm. whim, but it's actually an intention and how much more concrete, you know, the reality of that becomes. Did yeah. I, did, did sick girl put up a fight against next girl? about future girl of course of course (laughs) that's not a proper superhero story without a little comeback from the nemesis um so yeah absolutely and I had to 
to be honest, I still battle with that version of sick girl that exists in my thinking sometimes. Um, I still, you know, I'll, I'll go to the gym and I mean, I'm at the gym regularly now and I'm doing stuff that I couldn't even imagine before, but I will, I will have a hard workout. I will do a strenuous sort of activity out running and playing with the kids or something. And I still have to check myself. I still have to go, okay, it's all right to feel tired right now. That doesn't mean you're going back there. It's okay. Now, yeah. what is, you know, what do you know is the truth? My body is well. And, you know, I have to go back to those things and remind myself. That's why you have to, or I particularly, I have to journal every morning because we need to clean out. We need to detoxify every day from the stuff that's built up over the day. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I read a, you know, one of those terrible statistics that you read in in a trashy magazine. But I, I read a statistic a long time ago that said, um, you know, that when you get divorced, which I think, you know, breaking up with, you know, breaking up with with sickness, I think is kind of the same, or recovering from from a serious illness or any kind of trauma, you know, it kind of sits in that bucket mm. of. Um, but when you, it takes you one year for every five years, um, you know, or it takes you. Um, you know, yeah. It's, yeah, one year for every five years or one year for every three years, something like that, um, that it takes you to to process, not to get over, but just to process the trauma of what of what's happened and that you actually continue to process and to move past that trauma then for the rest of your life, you know, that there's no, mm-hmm. there's no single point of overcoming, um, which I think is, is helpful. It's helpful for me to it's helpful for me to understand you know as a person who who you know often I get surprised when my own stuff kind of creeps back up on me um you know I think we do have a little bit of a tendency to um to storybook our lives we kind of go oh yeah this was this was the one moment um on the hero's journey you know this was the obstacle that I had to overcome and now everything's okay and now we're all on the way to the happy ending um, as opposed to real life, <laughs> where where actually I think um, you know the more the more you struggle and the more you overcome, um, I think sometimes the more then the universe hands you, um, and maybe that's because of competency. Maybe that's because um, actually you're prepared to engage. I do sometimes think um, people who have been through hard shit um, are more prepared to engage in hard shit, and so yeah. rather than sweeping stuff under the rug or you know, what have you, they, they kind of are like, okay, I can, I can deal with that. I can, I can, I can face this thing. But yeah. So I think those experiences and those situations and those things that you think are awful and hard and you don't know how you're ever going to cope with them, they set you up and they give you skills. And I'm so grateful for the things now that I learned back in that time. Mm. Um, so what's, what's next in the life of, uh, in the life of Meg Cowan? Are there, um, are there particular challenges that you are that you're facing, or are there just big kind of goals ahead of you? Yeah, I I'm loving the work that I'm starting to do more of. Obviously, I I run the stationery company, um, but to be honest, it runs on on relatively minimal input per week now, and it's a it's a nice little cash cow. Ideal. But, um, uh, yeah, it's pretty fabulous. Um, but I have I found myself working more with people who have got to similar stages as me, feeling stuck. Um, I love helping people who have this desire to change the world like I do um, and are not sure how that's supposed to play out. They're in a space where they are 
trying to design their life and they're not sure what that looks like and and not sure where to go next. And so I've been doing that uh, in business and then in life, helping people develop products that they want to get off the ground because I love product developing and I'm I'm loving exploring all of those spaces and just just getting alongside people and helping people and connecting with other people who have the big vision for um, you know for changing the world the superhero stuff you know I've realized <laughs> I can't do it by myself and I want to do that alongside people who are doing mighty things and so that's that's where life is at at the moment I'm just I'm loving the collaborations that are coming up I'm loving the clients that I'm working with in transformation and and in designing their lives and yeah it's great fun it's it's in progress but it's great fun and progress though I think probably the best place to be it'd get a bit boring oh, if we were done with growth wouldn't it always always <laughs> yeah. hey so you've got a um you've got a cool resource that's on your website it's called um the perfect day do you want to tell us about it because we're going to put a link to it on this uh on this episode page so people can um go and check it out yeah right so in the spirit of helping people um design their life this was one of the most powerful exercises that i have ever done and still continue to do it's that imagining that future pacing into um, what is the next level version of myself look like? What does your perfect day actually look like? And so it's just a guided workbook to help people walk through and begin to discover and unpack, okay, what would my perfect day look like? And then from there, you know, it's a process that I go on with clients of how do we actually take that perfect day stuff and how do you actually start to bring that down into reality? So yeah, that's there. And it's, it's honestly one of the most powerful exercises that I have done over the years. That's fantastic. I think, you know, if you have the opportunity to get your hands on a tool like that, then it can be, um, it can be an incredible open door. Um, mm. So hopefully people will go and check it out. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to share your story with us. I have no, really appreciated it. Oh, so much fun. We'll have to do it face-to-face next time with yeah. some, with some yeah. wine with some, once with the house whiskey. is finished. With some, <laughs> with some whiskey once the house is finished. Beautiful. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Transformationist. We hope that the journey doesn't stop here. For more information about this episode and materials we referenced, please visit thetransformationist.org or join the Facebook group for more conversation about this week's episode. Just search for The Transformationist by Tash McGill on Facebook. This episode was written and produced by Tash McGill with production support from Truthwork Media and music is by Hans Van Vliet. The Transformationist is brought to you by Solar Feeder Consulting and TashMcGill.com.